power and connectivity. For the rest of the world, that's normal, right? 21st century economies have both of those things and they don't think about it because everything else is built on top of that. Like that's the foundation. We're pushing the edge of electricity in Africa. We're pushing it out further to the edges and we're bringing in connectivity to those locations. Sometimes they're really off grid. They're so far off in the mountains or so far off in the hills, but they all of a sudden are brought into a space where they can be at par with their counterparts anywhere else in the world. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Howdy, ladies and gents. Thanks for joining us. Really special and important episode for you this week. Josh and myself, Dan, sit down with Eric Hersman, founder of numerous large and impactful tech companies and projects in Africa. And most recently, he helped found Gridless, in our view, one of the coolest Bitcoin companies on the planet. They are focused on helping expand renewable, rural, mini-grid energy generation in Africa through Bitcoin mining. This hour is chocked full of substance and silliness. We cover why access to abundant energy is foundational to human flourishing, the magnitude of the African energy problem and why Bitcoin is key to the solution, our nation states mining Bitcoin, shoving jewelry up your butthole and then calling 911, midgets for sale, and much more. It's chats like these that truly make the two of us realize just how broad and significant Bitcoin's impact is, maybe most especially for the world's underprivileged and disenfranchised. By the time this episode comes out, the Bitcoin conference will be in full swing, folks. Check out the amazing educational content and stream the conference at the Bitcoin Magazine YouTube channel, linked down in the notes. Also, keep an eye out for early bird ticket sales on the Bitcoin 2024 conference. These things start out cheap at a couple hundred bucks and get near $1,000 as the conference approaches, so get them early. We will have a discount code for early bird tickets to the Bitcoin 2024 conference, and we will paste that down in our notes as soon as it becomes available. This episode is brought to you by our long-term partners at CoinKite, simply building the best fucking hardware in the space. Makers of the legendary Cold Card MK4, it's got two secure elements, it's NFC enabled. You can create your public-private key pairs offline in an air-gapped fashion and add as much entropy as you deem necessary. Flat out the most secure wallet in existence. CoinKite also has a bunch of other cool shit, including the Block Clock Mini and Micro, the Sats Card, Tap Signer, Seed Plate, Open Dime, Hats, and more. Get discounts on many of CoinKite's products at our affiliate link down in the show notes, and use code BCB, that's code BCB, for a discount on the cold card. Josh, we got to hurry up because uh, Eric's got dinner to get to. So <laughs> this may be the shortest blue collar Bitcoin episode of all time. Is what There's I'm no thinking. telling what kind of meat it could be either. I mean, he's in Africa. Is it zebra? <laughs> is it wildebeest? <laughs> is it some feral hog? I mean, I got to tell you, you know, honestly, in, in wild game meat, I would say I like giraffe the best. We're not having that tonight for dinner. I got to say, I've never had giraffe. I I would love to try it's it. got though. a good flavor because they, they eat the leaves instead of um, the grass. So they have a, actually a completely different flavor. We, we were talking uh, before we hit record, like just how insulated us, us uh, Westerners are. I remember going on a missions trip when I was in high school. It was to Jamaica and they were serving us like bone in goat. I mean, a fairly basic meat yeah. in, uh, on a zoomed out, you know, world perspective. But for a bunch of cush suburban youth group attenders, it was 
their fucking minds were blown. They thought they were eating like salamander or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait till they try like rancid elephant or something like that. That'll actually mess, mess them up. Yeah. Well, I mean, folks, you've already put together, he may not look it or sound it, but we do have our first African on the Blue Collar Bitcoin podcast. <laughs> Eric, it's a pleasure to have you. We've been looking forward to this one. We were saying we're going to cover some things we don't often cover that are really important for a lot of people to zoom out of their their insulated uh, situation, get out underneath the covers and, and realize that there's a lot more going on in the world than that often meets the eye if you're a if you're a privileged individual and you're kind of on the frontier of a lot of stuff. Before we get into that though, give us a little background. Introduce yourself to our audience. Who are you? Yeah, uh, Josh, Dan, thanks for having me on here. Um, really appreciate it. You know, I, I was telling you earlier, I, I listened to this podcast the first time almost a year ago, and um, and so it's a real pleasure to be on with the guys who I've been listening to as personalities for a little while. Um, so yeah, I don't sound very much like I came from Africa. Um, I, I grew up here in Sudan and Kenya. Uh, my parents were linguists, missionary linguists from South Sudan. War got bad, we moved to Kenya. Um, graduated high school from here and went back to the U.S. for university. Um, did a stint in the Marines and then um, back to university, finished up a degree. Um, bounced back to Africa and started building tech businesses. So I've been in the tech business world here for a little while. Uh, building up the different communities in Kenya and East Africa um, around tech, and then building my own companies in that same time. And so, yeah, I've been been pretty um, been pretty fortunate because I think you know I was I came to the U.S. just as the internet was becoming a thing in the early '90s, and mm -hmm. um, I was able to take a lot of the learnings um, from building stuff in the U.S. and being a part of that into uh, into Kenya and and really kind of explore new tech companies in in Africa, just as it started to boom too. I'm thinking about myself. If I grew up in Africa, what was the, what was the, what was the thing that really stood out to you? Or what did you notice about the U S hmm. the first time you came here, having grown up in Africa, what was majorly different? The culture shock, right? Um, so when I was a little kid, we first went to the U S when I was, I want to say, uh, six years old. And, um, my my folks, uh, my mom's side of the family had uh, orchards in North in, in Central Valley, California, um, and so I just I remember. Well, my, I don't remember this, of course. My my, my mom tells it. So like you know, as I looked around, I was like, well, where where are all the black people? You know, and I just had never been in a world where I was a majority um, person, right? And so it was very. It was you know, just as a little kid, kids have no no filter, right? And so it was just like, right. where, where you know, why <laughs> what's going on here? Um, but then later in life, you know, like I came back to the U.S. for university, and I um, I'd never been in a supermarket that had all different so much food. Mm. I, I mean, I couldn't believe that there was just like oh, 20, 30 types of bread. Uh, you know, there's one type of bread. You know, there's one type of milk, and you hope it's on the shelf. Uh, you know, like that's what that's the the world I grown up in here. Um, you know, because my my folks also lived in when I was in high school. I went to boarding school in Kenya, and um, because there was no schools for me to go to in, in 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 Khartoum in Sudan, which is actually this you know the last couple of weeks has been literally blowing up again. Um, but they, there was you know Sharia law, and there was um, curfews, and you had queues for diesel or petrol for your trucks, and queues for bread, queues for flour, queues for milk, like you, you know lines for everything. Like you you know you, if you heard there was something there, you had to rush and get it. And so for me to, to come to the States and just find so much everywhere, 
was always um, was was just a real culture shock for me. Wow, that sounds very similar to a lot of what a lot of people that come from the Soviet Union. It's kind of a similar idea, and we we got just a bit of a taste of that during the during the uh, COVID scare here, where you walk to a store and there's like, holy shit, I've never seen shelves empty before in the U.S. Um, but yeah, we've never experienced anything like you're describing. First reminder, like we completely take for granted the abundance that we're used to here. Uh, and, you know, I think of two examples in my life, like about your situation coming over here. The first is that I went to a college where there were a lot of missionary kids. Oh, MKs, as we call where were them. you at and, uh, Wheaton College, West yeah, of Chicago. I know Wheaton very well. Um, and they, a lot of them, I mean, like I would say maybe something in the vicinity of like 5% of my graduating class was missionary kids. And so they look like Westerners. They sound like Westerners, you know, their parents maybe grew up here in the United States, but they've spent their entire life in the middle East or in Africa or in Eastern Europe or something. Yeah. It's interesting to watch their progression of just how mind blown they are by being in the city of Chicago, the, 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 just the resources, the food, the social norms. And, and that's gotta be a weird thing to navigate because nobody's expecting it back to what I said a second ago, you look and you sound like an American, but you're very much not, it's not in your veins. Additionally, I have a family member, um, my sister-in-law and, and her whole family, they're missionaries. Okay. And so like their kids are growing up in that environment. They only come over here every couple of years. And when we see them, you can realize like, yeah, these kids are not growing up in the United States. Uh, and so it's just interesting to hear some about your journey. Yeah, you just get a different worldview, right? 100%. What, what do you most dislike about the United States? Like, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you of like, man, I love how Africans do this? It's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but like, I like, I don't like all the rules. Um, mm. Like, there's so much safety consciousness and... And I know you're firefighters, so you, you know, safety is actually important to you. Um, yeah, but we get, we get annoyed as hell with it too, Eric. I mean, people are yeah. scared of their own shadow here in the United States. Yeah, people call I, us for some of the stuff you wouldn't believe. Well, give me your best story. Come on, give me your best story on that. I, Man. Well, what was coming to mind initially was like when someone hears their fire alarm chirping and they call 911 because they can't figure out that it's just a low battery. That one's yeah. pretty annoying. But yeah. I mean, people are just so safety conscious. It's overboard, man. My best story is a guy that tried to steal jewelry from Kohl's. He shoved the jewelry up his asshole. And then he, w- <laughs> he was in so much. Wait, how dis- do I not know this story? He was in so much discomfort that he called 911. <laughs> no. So he, he executed a heist, shoved jewelry up his butthole, and then said, fuck, I need a fireman to come help me. Dan, don't tell me you've never shoved anything up your ass to hide it from somebody. Come on. I want five firemen to come help me out with this situation. It oh, was just, God. hey, man, we'll get you in a position of comfort. We'll take you to the ER and get the police involved here. But yeah, there's did some. He to, did you get to keep it? Uh, that's a great question. I bet Cole's just said, you know what? You know what? You can have that. That's good. <laughs> Super discount for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, that is not what I expected to hear. That's amazing. Yeah, we see some we see some wild stuff, Eric. <clears throat> yeah, let let's hear more about your entrepreneurial journey, your tech journey, and maybe we can parlay that into Gridless. Tee off here on on sort of your progression. Yeah, so you know, kind of been in the in the software. I was in the software space early on, um, as we know. My parents were missionaries, but they were linguists uh, specifically, so not your normal type of missionary. That they they basically work on um, learning a language, creating an alphabet for it, 
and then eventually translating that into the books of the Bible. Um, and it's something that takes 15 or 20 years. It's a, it's a long, long haul kind of job. And, um, because of that in the eighties, um, and nineties, of course, but definitely in the eighties, even they started to get computers, um, to help them with this work. It was, it was, it, it, it could help speed up and then save things in a way that they could never do it before. So that meant as a young kid, I also would, have access to my dad's computer when he wasn't using it. And I would just try to get on and play different games as you do. And so I was just familiar with computers. Um, I was just, I just understood that as you were finding internet porn, go on. Well, we didn't have the internet yet. So, I mean, there's that. Um, so we, um, so I was, I was, I had the computer. And so I it wasn't until I came to the U S I was actually in college and a guy had this modem and it was kind of thing and getting, and, and he was loaded a page this is 1993, and my jaw was just like, are you kidding me? Like, what is this? And so I started just kind of, you know, learning about the, the internet at that point and, um, you know, parlaying what I knew from just playing games on computers and trying to backdoor things into like, okay, well, you can write this little script and that little script. Um, but I didn't think of it as, as anything to do with business um, or my life. It was just something to do. And... Um, Eventually, I you know I, I got into business. Um, I actually my very my very first business was importing high end kind of furniture and home accessories into the North American market, going to the wholesale markets of North Carolina and selling furniture. That's like who knew um, that didn't work out very well because after nine eleven the the uh, the shipping took a lot longer logistics and I uh, I I learned valuable lessons on what cash flow actually meant um, and then. Um, I was like, oh, what else do I know? And it was like, well, I can, I can build websites and I can do that kind of thing. And so got into, got into the, the, you know, building websites that when built, then got into building applications and, um, um, you know, the next thing I know we're building, like one of the biggest applications we built was this, um, software for crowdsourcing crisis information during the post-election violence in Kenya. Uh, it's called Ushahidi. Um, it's used around the world now, like like 200 countries, 200,000 deployments. Uh, every really? every crisis wow. and disaster you can think of is used for. Um, and what happened was that became so big that it, it really raised awareness of that that really good software could be built in Kenya, uh, could be built in Africa, and used anywhere in the world. So it wasn't just a place where software went to. It was a place that could export it as well that there's actually software mm. engineers and web designers on the ground that can build things. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we, we had a lot of success with that and, you know, we wanted to help support the local community. So um, we, you know, as a community, we've been talking about what if we had a place of our own and that place became uh, something that we, we helped build out called the iHub, the innovation hub in Nairobi. It grew to this fourth floor building with uh, 17,000 members, had a research arm, a supercomputer cluster, that famously we, we we thought about doing Bitcoin mining on in 2011, but we never did. And oh, that's like the biggest mistake of my life. Um, expensive. Very oh expensive. Oh my gosh. So yeah. it's such a Everyone's bad. got a version of that story though, you know? Everyone's Everyone got does. their version. 2011, you thought about yeah. doing that? Yeah. Holy I mean, shit. You hear a lot of near misses in like 2013, but that is a devastating near miss in 2011. Oh, like, wow. It, it's Sorry hurt. to rub that in, but that's, that's early. You don't want to run the numbers on it. <laughs> you want to know even the best part of this? Yeah, okay. you definitely don't. So the supercomputer cluster we built, like we, we built it um, 
Google had given us some money to build this thing. And so we built it and it was sitting there. We had um, the, the, the lease for our, the, for the innovation of the iHub um, included power. So I, was, I would just sit there and say, well, why don't we just run this at night? And I would tell the team who was working on it, it's like, why don't we just run this at night? And in my world, I didn't really believe in Bitcoin at that point. I knew about it, but I wasn't thinking about it like uh, at all. And I was like, it would tell a good story. It'd be like in, in Kenya, they're, they're mining Bitcoin. I was thinking more from the marketing angle than the actual usage of it. And um, I would mention it a number of times to the guys and it never got done. <laughs> and I, I, you know, three years later, I was looking at it and I was like, shoot, that was a mistake. You know, and then four <laughs> years later, you're thinking, yeah, like every time it spikes, you always think mm -hmm. about what you lost. And with the reason I think about what we lost is that it would, that Bitcoin wouldn't have come to me. That would have come to the IHUB. And that was the nexus point for all the tech stuff that was happening in East Africa, well, especially Kenya. And you can imagine that we could have funded every startup for the next like 50 years off of for that sure. Bitcoin if, we, if we'd actually mined it. So that, that's actually why it pains me the most, Dan. Yeah. It's not quite as painful as the guy who, I mean, you, you've heard of the guy who lost a hard drive, a I, laptop with a hard drive in a, in a landfill for with like, what was oh, it, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin on it or something? Oh God, a no, lot. I don't horrible. know, it was a massive amount, but at least you didn't already have it and lose it. I feel like that is the one thing that could be worse, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's definitely worse. Like, or the guy who, you know, uh, Stefan, who's, who's lost his hardware password. Um, mm -hmm. So he... You know, he's got one more try or two more tries before he loses like two hundred million dollars. Oh man! With oh my God. I just got my heart rate just went up. There, there yeah. is a lesson there in your journey, though, and I, I think I remember you referencing when you were on with Peter. Like it took several tries of Bitcoin, uh, just throwing it in your face for you to realize that you really needed to pay attention to it. If you're listening and you're on the fence, don't say shoot again, as as Eric just said. Like don't. Don't sit around knowing that this thing has massive potential, thinking that, eh, whatever, I'm just going to wait it out and then it's going to skyrocket again. Like, make the choice now. If you, if, you, if you think it's got utility, if you think it's got value, stop sitting around, grow a pair of balls, at least take a hedge position and get, get started and get involved. Because a lot of people, it takes a few tries to get it right. And that's kind of your story. Yeah, it is. And it's like, and it's, and what it is, it's a shirt. I think it comes easier with conviction when you've actually done the homework on it. Mm. And I hadn't actually done the homework yet. And that's right. why each time it came up, I was like, eh, okay, I'll do this other thing instead. And so right. it's worth going down the rabbit hole a little bit so that you have some conviction to, to, to spend that time or money on the thing that gets you closer to Bitcoin. Yeah. Can you, um, can you give us a little bit of an outline about what the energy grid and electricity situation looks like in in uh, rural Africa, I, I, from the bit of peeping I did about understanding this, it seems that a lot of people have access to it, but they ne can't necessarily afford it. How does that dynamic work out there? So it's actually, they don't, not a lot of people have access to it. So we have a population of about 1.1 billion in Africa and 600 million don't have access to it. So they don't have okay. access at all. Now, what that you're right insane. about- insane. That no, is it's, it's, insane to just stop there. Like that's crazy. That's half the population of Africa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't have access to electricity. Sorry. And, and so the other half that does have access, is that also, is it, is that a true statement that, that they can mostly not afford to use it, even right. though they have that's access? That's what I was going to say, okay. Josh. Yeah, that's where you're right. Where the people who do okay. have access to it can't afford it or can't afford it all the time, right? It's not reliable right. for them to be able to, or 
reliability is a different thing. We can get to that. It's there, but yeah. they can't always afford it. So they only pay for what they need right now. Um, I think that's, that's very common. So, okay. So let's, let's talk about what it looks like to not have access to electricity. Cause you, mm-hmm. you've spent a lot of your life and you currently spend a lot of your time in these rural areas. Explain for a, for a Westerner what it looks like to not have electricity. <laughs> That's a broad and basic question, but I think it's an important uh, picture to paint. Yeah. So um, just last week, we were upgrading our site in Malawi, uh, very rural, remote Malawi. And, um, you know, when the, when the sun goes down, it is very dark. Uh, you are in a very remote part of the world. There is not a lot of ambient light around. And if you do not have power, then um, your world gets smaller rather quickly. Um, security becomes more of an issue um, uh, as well. Like it's, if you're trying to study, well, you're now on maybe a paraffin lamp um, and you now have the, the knock-on effect of maybe bad health in the future, your lungs, uh, because of all the smoke, either that or charcoal for cooking. Um, so all of these things actually add up and you're sitting in this in this in this space that doesn't have if you don't have power you you don't you're just with a paraffin lamp and a charcoal cooker that's what you have okay and if if you do have power you maybe still can't afford very much but you know what it doesn't take much much energy an led light bulb so you have an led light bulb that's the very first thing the next thing you get is a way to charge your 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 phone because everybody does try and get a phone if they can afford one right um so that's the next thing you get and then after that, things really open up because you, you then buy a, um, maybe a TV or a refrigerator to now cool and, 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 and keep your, your food longer. Um, you, uh, if, you're very, if you're wealthy enough to be able to really afford it, you'll buy, buy a hot plate that you can cook things on instead of using charcoal. Um, that's what actually happens in the village. And so you know, in the villages uh, that we were in just last week, it's, it's really incredible. You walk into the wealthier members of the community the elders of the chiefs, and they'll have all those things. You walk into the next door neighbor's house and they might have one of those things. And, um, so your, your ability to make your, to, to move forward in the world mm-hmm. is directly related to your access to energy. And it's so hard for us to understand whether I'm sitting here in Nairobi where I have, you know, decent power. Um, I won't say good, great power, but decent power and, um, and decent internet you're sitting in in the US and you have always on power all and if it goes off it's a thing right um yeah. the, the difference in worlds between that the chasm between those two worlds is so vast that we do not actually appreciate the opportunities that we get because we have them mm. yeah oh man this is such a, a basic theme to round back to here about just the limitations to inclusion economic inclusion, upward mobility in society and in the world for someone that just doesn't, doesn't even have access to the grid. Something that we just completely take for granted. The people that don't have electricity generally don't have smartphones or is there, is there kind of like limited electricity use, some smartphone use? Yeah. So, it's, okay. So my, my business before this, wait, I didn't tell you about this, was um, in connectivity. So for 10 years, I built a company called Brick that we, we rolled out internet connectivity across rural and urban Africa, so slums and, um, and rural communities. So I know quite a bit about, um, about connectivity in Africa. What you'll see is in most countries, um, you'll say like, well, um, 60%, at most, you'll say 60% of the population 
has access to con connectivity, right? Um, and that means they might have a smartphone. Now, um, that's in your best countries. That's your Kenya's, your maybe, you know, South Africa's, places like that. In, um, in the rest of the, of the countries in Africa, you'll say maybe 30 to 40% might have smartphones. So those people have access, if they, if they can afford the internet and there's, and there's internet near them, then they could, they could get online, right? But there's very few who are doing that. Ends up being, long story short, is 20% of the population in any country can, can probably be online. So that means that they want a smartphone, but they have the data turned off most of the time. And they're using it as either a media device or just a normal phone. Um, the rest of the people just have dumb phones, you know, your, your okay. normal non-smartphone. See, this is an example of like my lens being limiting because I just view a phone as a smartphone. Like even the distinction between dumb phone and mm -hmm. smartphone isn't even yeah. in my vocabulary, which is why I just said, but basically we it was just meaning phone when I said smartphone and you're like, no, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, I guess let's go on this tangent real quick. Do people have any, like what's the Bitcoin access like on a dumb phone? Are there workarounds and, and applications that can be used? There are now, you know, um, so what, what I've been harping on about and I'm doing, I've actually gotten, a, you know, the, the Bitcoin community in Kenya to get behind this is we're, we're actually testing all the on and off ramps into buying Bitcoin on all the different tools that there are available in the country that anybody could get access to. And right now that it is shockingly hard to be able to buy and sell Bitcoin as just an ordinary person, even if you have a smartphone. Right, it's just it's not easy. There's gates to the to, to the access of Bitcoin. Now, the one the one really great innovation, and I still think it's maybe the most innovative uh, thing that happened in Bitcoin last year. It doesn't catch most people's attention because it's low tech. Is what um, KG and his team did with Machunkura. Machunkura is um, he's out of South Africa, and they basically built for the dumb phone, right? Uh, you use the USSD codes, the star number number hash kind of uh, you know thing to mm -hmm. send uh, lightning between dumb phones. So you don't need internet access to do that. So it's how do you send lightning to each other? So that's possible in like I think it's eight, maybe nine countries now across Africa. Fantastic. I mean, KG's smart. He's he's actually a, you should talk to him. He's a great guy, um, and uh, and that's valuable. But if you can't buy the Bitcoin. And you can't off-ramp it into your own local currency. You got a problem. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you, you really do. I've got an interesting angle on this. Um, <clears throat> so I'm thinking about this. The, the, the two problems that Africa has primarily are, oh, as far in, in this scope of this is uh, power generation and connectivity to the internet. Um, so Bitcoin, as I, I know, we're going to bridge into this now. Talk about gridless and about what you guys are doing. This is a way to kind of bootstrap power generation and give it something to, you know, uh, it's all like subsidizing with a free market um, thing, which is Bitcoin. It's going to subsidize a lot of these grids. And then I'm also thinking about how this can work in conjunction with Starlink, Elon Musk's uh, worldwide internet. So, I mean, you're covering power generation, how to get these grids up and running. And then on the other side, now you've got access to the internet and even the most remote place in Africa or anywhere in the world. It's going to be interesting to watch these two. Um, these two things coalesce and help Africa in a, in a major yeah. way. Have you, have you guys started messing around with Starlink or used it in Africa at all? Yeah, or we just turned know? on our first unit um, in Malawi last week. Um, so I just, I, I, where did I put it up? Uh, maybe on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, we, we deployed it and it's working like a charm there. Uh, we have another unit that's going to be turned on here in Kenya pretty soon. Um, but yeah, it's good. Uh, I guess it gives us some redundancy. So we have both the 
mobile like 4G uh, LTE connection, and we also have Starlink now, so we have some redundancy. Because we, all right, problems. I can't remember who I was telling this, but we had a problem in Malawi that we had put um, a, you know a relay on a, one of the power poles, and up there we had to put a solar panel and a battery so it could run 24 seven. Well, somebody came by and they cut down the power pole and stole the battery. And we're like, well, damn. Um, okay. And so we, 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 but we were still, you know, our miners were still running and, you know, we just weren't making any, we were making any Bitcoin. And that was, that was frustrating. It took a few days to get it all fixed up and everything and added, added security. So we didn't have that happen again, but we needed redundancy in the signal. And, um, and so we have that now and we have it on site. It's very easy to set up and, and run. And, um, we're fortunate because, uh, we, because of my last business, we really already know, um, the Starlink team. And so we were able to get some earlier access to be, um, some testers for them. So we provide them feedback on what that, what it's like, uh, the user experience and everything. And, um, and, uh, you know, but we, we really do like it. It's, it, it's, it opens up some additional, uh, risk, um, avoidance for us. There's something interesting though. There's like, the worlds that we're talking about where with power and connectivity, it's like what we have to remember is that in for the rest of the world, that's normal, right? The 21st century um, economies have both of those things and they don't think about them because everything else is built on top of that. Like that's the foundation. So what we're, what we're actually talking about when, we, when we're t- saying we're building this, you know, we're pushing the edge of electricity in Africa, we're pushing it out further to the edges and we're bringing in connectivity to those locations is we're, what we're really doing is we're bringing those same communities. Sometimes they're really off grid. They're so far off in the mountains or so far off in the hills that they're not even close to a tarmac road, right? They're, they're, they're dirt roads and everything, but they all of a sudden are brought into a space where they are, they can be at par with their counterparts anywhere else in the world. And that's what actually gets exciting because then you can start seeing communities jump past even local, you know, economic reality and tap into earnings you can you could actually tap into some of these apps to earn bitcoin or or dollars right there's ways to do that now that are really interesting that i think open up the world um to these other pockets that haven't actually had real access to the rest of the world yet mm. yeah this idea that I've, i hear thrown out some of just like leapfrogging because of the different opportunities that exist here in the digital age you could have rural African communities really short circuit their path to prosperity um, if if they get th- those basic necessities, maybe the most important of which is power. Yeah. So we've kind of established like power is essential to prosperity and inclusion. Uh, Africa has a massive deficiency in power for many of the people living there. So let's get into the topic of how Bitcoin increases electrical opportunity, I guess is the way I'll put it in Africa. And then we can get into the grid list specifically. So, you know, how energy is built is that people look at density of, of population and, um, ease of being able to move the power that's generated and put it to use right away. Because if you don't use your power right away, it is wasted. It doesn't store well. Mm. Um, so the, the main national power grids of most countries have gone to the places that are the low hanging fruit. Whether you're in Malawi, you're in Kenya, Zambia, it doesn't matter, right? Um, however, those places that are not easy to get to, uh, you have to do a lot of transmission or, or just don't seem to have the density of population, um, get ignored. 
So then you have independent power producers who look at those places and say, oh, I could go in there and build a mini grid. And then maybe five to 10 years, I'd have enough usage of the power in that, in that community that I could, I could make good money off of this. So I will make that investment and I'll wait the five to 10 years to, for them to you know, go beyond buying LED light bulbs and charging their phones and now buying fridges and TVs. Okay, great. Um, but it takes five to 10 years. So in that, in that middle ground or in, that, in, that, in those early days, who are you going to sell that power to? Nobody. Because there's no business who's, who can be kind of completely geographically agnostic and move anywhere in the world, right? Except for Bitcoin mining. We can, leave, we can, we can be anywhere. You give us a, a, you know, a Starlink terminal, you, um, you put a, you know, a container, 20-foot container on the ground, and you fill it with miners, you know, we can go anywhere. And so it doesn't matter if you're on a dirt road in the, in, the, in the backwoods of nowhere, we can be there too. And so we work with these power generators and we say, listen, what do you have that's extra? And, um, and what we're going to do is we're going to give you a percentage of the revenue in Bitcoin. You're going to be paid in Bitcoin. You can choose if you want to cash out of that Bitcoin today, you can hold it and sell it tomorrow. doesn't matter to us. It's your Bitcoin. Um, in return, that means that we don't have to pay um, a, 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 you know, a fee for the energy every month. So it lowers our cost of operations significantly and de-risks us as a, as an operational entity. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it takes a couple touches or some good pitch to explain to them why they want Bitcoin. Right. I'm sure that's a, a hurdle you have to jump with most of these people or do they, they get it doing nothing with the energy as is. So they might as well take something. It's like we, yeah. we take, you know, a lot of times they've never heard of Bitcoin or if they've heard of it, they just think of it as, you know, your general crypto and it's a scam and all this other stuff, right? So we come in there and we say, you know, this is what we do. We explain it to them. They're like, okay, well, how much are you going to pay? <laughs> we say, well, we're not going to pay. We're going we're gonna to give you a revenue share of, of the Bitcoin that's generated. And then we show them how much it's worth today, you know, and you could mm -hmm. sell your amount of Bitcoin. If we were going to do like... um you know, a megawatt of, of energy, um, it would earn, uh, let's call it three Bitcoin a month, right? Um, so you'll earn one of those Bitcoin, let's say, just to make the math easy. And you can choose to sell it for, what is it, $28,000, $29,000 and be done, or you can save it and hope it goes, hope the number goes up. So, but that's on you, that's your Bitcoin. And they're like, oh, okay, but this blah, blah, blah. We're like, okay, how much are you selling your energy for now? Well, it's not. It's like we we're, we have excess. So it's like, okay. Right. So, would you rather continue to make nothing, or would you like to take a you know a chance with us on the Bitcoin? Because we're making Bitcoin too. So we obviously have some conviction on this, right? And um, you know, usually it doesn't take more than one touch. Um, we we actually make that case and um, convince them within the first hour. Yeah, that's a win-win situation. Pretty easy to sell. Do you think that is an easier pitch in Africa than it is here in the U.S.? Because th there still yeah. seems to be a lot of friction here. Like just putting myself in the shoes of Harry Sudak or somebody like it seems like they're still having conversations where they're looking at energy utilities in the eye saying there's no downside. Like this is free money for you and stigma, lack of knowledge for whatever reason, there still exists an impasse. It sounds like you're cutting through some of that do you do you see the difference in africa versus here in the u.s or any thoughts there yeah i think it comes from two things one is that you actually have a good good grid interconnect they always have the ability to sell this fairly easily mm. 
in the U.S. to somebody else, even if it's just the main grid that doesn't pay them very much. It's something. There is no other buyer here. We are literally the buyer of last resort. And so that changes the dynamics of the conversation. Um, The other thing that's different, and the other thing that's the same, I've actually spoken to some of the very large independent power producers in Africa. And um, they too, just like the ones in the States, are, you know, slightly older suits, right? And they don't, they've, they're very successful. They've made money. They don't want their peers looking at them and saying, oh, you were playing with Bitcoin? Like, you know, and, and looking down, like, they, why take that risk, that personal risk? You know, instead, like, just keep making money the old way. So there is some of that here too, but it's, it's really the really large power producers that are independent that, are, that think that way, not the small guys. The majority of these power producers that you guys are uh, in talks with or dealing with, what, how are they producing the power? Is it hydroelectric? Is it solar? Uh, especially more off the grid, further in, into the middle of nowhere. What is the primary uh, method that they're producing power with? So we, we've primarily worked with hydro. Uh, that's because we get 24-7 um, on it. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, the real numbers that, I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like 85% of all of the mini grids in Africa are actually solar. Um, and solar, while interesting, is not interesting enough because you only get that eight to 10 hours a day of sun. And that means that right. you have three X on your ROI, which is not great. Um, yeah, it's expensive. so it makes it, it makes it tough to work with. Like we found a, this, uh, this beautiful site that somebody had built a 1.5 megawatt solar site and it just top level built, just beautiful. And, um, they couldn't get an agreement with the, with the, um, power grid. And so they, they asked us to take a look at it and we were, we were like, this, this is fantastic. Like we could actually come in here and turn it on tomorrow. But if I have anywhere else to put those miners, that's hydro, geothermal, hybrid of wind and solar, it's always better than, than this, right? So the only way I think you can make solar work here is one of two ways. One is somebody has made the investment to put in the battery storage and, that's on their, their balance sheet, not ours. So we're not con- concerned about that. Um, two, um, it's that somebody has really old miners and you're just, put, you're just sweating those assets out on these locations. They already paid for themselves in a, in a, in a high efficiency site for three, five yep. years. And now you're just shipping them over. You're making them work as long as you can. And you know, if you make some money, you, know, you will make some money, but you're not worried about the ROI anymore. Walk us through an example of where gridless might intervene, both like the business transaction, like what you do, give us an example of that. And then any tangible or theoretical examples of the impact that that could have on a local grid or community. Yeah, I'll give you um, two. I'll give you the one in Kenya and the one in Malawi that are probably uh, the the ones that we've been most public about. Um, So in Kenya, which was our first site, we found a power generator, a power, you know, company that was looking to put in some new generation. And, um, uh, they needed an anchor tenant. So we said, we'll, we'll be your anchor tenant. They built it. They commissioned it in December. Um, so five months ago. And um, first of all, they were able to actually get it built and get it paid for because they had us as an anchor tenant, right? Number two, um, because we came in and then took up all their excess energy, they didn't have to have the same price of energy for the community anymore. Because you, you have to know what happens if, if the community is the only buyer and the community is only using, let's call it 20% of the energy, they still yep. have to pay for all the energy that's 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 being put in there because, um, you know, the company's made that investment. 
So when we come in, uh, it decreases the cost of power for the other business op takers as well as community. Uh, so it, you know, it can it can be fairly significant. You know, it can be a it can be a fairly good drop in price depending on on the situation. Uh, now we don't directly control that. That's the power generator, our partner who does all that and makes those decisions. But um, we're working with a really great one. They're very well connected in the in the community, and um, and so it had immediate impact on just lowering the price of power for ordinary people. The other one was in Malawi, where this, you know, they've they've been around for about eight years, built this, you know, really great um, little mini grid powerhouses and sites. It was well done, but just didn't have like the sustainability because they didn't have a, a, a you know an industrial offtaker like ourselves. They just had the community. So they couldn't even afford to buy the next 200 meters to turn on the next 200 families who wanted power. Right. There was actually 800 families who wanted power, but they couldn't even find the, the next 200 meters to, to deploy. So when we came in, we signed up, they were able to buy those meters. And you know that was in January. And by the time I was there last, last week, you know, three and a half months later, 200 more families have been connected to power. And um, the other thing that had happened was one of their power generators at one of the, they have three powerhouses, uh, 50 kilowatts, 50 kilowatts, and 150 kilowatts. Uh, the 50 kilowatt one had gone, had burnt. And um, they couldn't afford to re-spool it, rewind it. So, uh, but with us on as their business customer, they now could afford to rewind that. And they were able to turn on another 50 kilowatts of power. Um, and so you can immediately see the impact on the businesses that we work with and then the downstream effects of that to the local community. Hmm. So when you guys have these miners set up on these grids, do you have an agreement where you guys will stand down if the community is drawing an X amount of power and they need to turn off the miners in order to subsidize or not yeah. subsidize in order to provide that power? Is that something that you guys do as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate to work with, um, you know, very smart other people on the team. So Philip is our uh, CFO slash CTO. So he does all the hard work. Um, and uh, he built out this real-time demand leveling system. So it's automated. And as soon as a community needs more power, we just turn off miners. We don't actually watch it. It just happens on its own. Um, so we built out a whole, you know, we built the software for it. And we built now, we realized we had to, we need to have even more sensitivity so we built out a, a like a battery buffer between us and and the and the the power generation. So we're even more sensitive to it. So within just milliseconds, we now can turn off miners um, as people turn on their cookers or a, a maze mill turns on the maze milling machine. It automatically buffers itself. Now this is important for the power generator too, so especially in hydro. So in hydro, what you have is um, if you have an excess amount of power, so you don't burn out your generator, you have what's called a dump load. Um, and oftentimes that's uh, just a generator that, um, that dumps it into heat in some way. Um, it could just be into a metal, um, a metal enclosure, or it could be into a big vat of like massive, um, um, barrel of water and, um, it just dissipates the heat that way. So what happens is sometimes you'll see, you know, on a 300 kilowatt site, 50 kilowatts of dump load, that's just complete waste, right? So when we come in there with a real-time demand leveling system, they now can take that dump load and turn it down to maybe 5 kilowatts, 10 kilowatts. And we take up the the rest of it because we can spool up machines just as much as we can spool them down. Yeah, I mean, what we're hitting at here, to go back to the basics, is just 
why is the grid deficient in Africa? The answer is that there, if we're thinking this through basic capitalistic lens, there's a lack of economic incentive to expand the grid. And then here comes this fake internet money, buyer of last resort. And what you're articulating and what you're doing is that you're saying, here comes something that can compress your ROI, that can allow things to expand quicker with a stable buyer of last resort, be sustainable basically incentivize these projects to be economically viable. And I guess we have two choices in the in the scheme of how do we electrify Africa? Do we want to do so with a free market, organic economic incentive, that being Bitcoin, or do we want to do it with an artificial centralized incentive that's failed decade after decade after decade? And it, it's just marvelous yeah. to see that see this thing working its way out through natural, realistic, capitalistic incentives. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing to hear and watch. It's also cool from, I mean, even in the first world, like we're, I'm, we're all watching the, the mainstream media basically slam Bitcoin for being dirty, for being polluting, for taking up all this energy. And, you know, they're, they're insinuating that it's taking energy otherwise people would have used in X, Y, or Z way, right? Mm-hmm. What Gridless is doing is it's showcasing a way that Bitcoin can subsidize energy generation, do it in a green manner using hydroelectricity or solar panels, as you were describing, Eric. Um, and actually just be a useful, genuinely good net positive for the world, literally on the ground in Africa right now. Yeah. Um, it's doing all of these things as we speak in direct contradiction to the mainstream narrative that everyone wants to propagate in politics in the U S right now. Nothing else can do this, Eric. I'm, I'm sure this is a, a question you get, like what, why can't we plug something else in? What else accomplishes this? Like it needs to be a monetary protocol with value that that runs on proof of work to accomplish this. Is this a conversation you have to have and explain? And I guess, what's your your short soundbite on why Bitcoin's really the only thing that can do this? Well, I mean, it's the only thing that can do it because people have tried every other thing uh, in Africa to make mini grids be sustainable, and they they haven't worked. In fact, our one of our investors is a group called Factory um, out of Colorado, fantastic group. And, you know, they've been funding uh, energy mini grid stuff in Africa for like a decade. They're great. Um, and there were some people on their own investment committee that were like, well, are you, sh- you know, just get into this Bitcoin thing, you know, like everybody's like, you know, like hedging on it because they don't want to be the guys who act like they actually believe Bitcoin is a thing. Right. And so, um, you know, uh, Morgan, their, um, their founder and, and, and head of the, the company, the investment committee. He says, he stands up and says, you know what? We've tried everything else for a decade and it hasn't worked. Why don't we try this? Right. And you know what? We've only been operating on this for, you know, less than a year, but it works. And you don't have to ask me, ask the power generation partners, look at their own investment committees and see how happy they are that they're actually sustainable as a business for the first time ever. You use the word mini grid in Africa. Everybody gets like these kind of cringe look on their face, like, no, 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 we can't do mini grids because they don't work. They don't work. So the, the, I think the, the, there's, there's a main takeaway here, which is like, if you want to actually push the edge of electrification in Africa, you have to use mini grids. If you're going to use mini grids, you have to have a way that they can be sustainable. The only business that can make them be sustainable is Bitcoin mining. Okay, so that's, I'll answer that question. Now, how do you finance these things? This is actually the thing that I've just learned more recently. 
let's say it's my last six months of education, is that from from mini grids to get finance, you want to know how weird and archaic this system is? So that mini grid goes out there, the guy who wants to generate, to create the power generation that would eventually become a mini grid. He goes out there and he finds a location, the right population density, blah, blah, blah. He comes out, it takes him a year or two. Then he goes and tries to find funding for it. Nobody who has money will put money investment into this because he knows that it won't be profitable, right? And his numbers are all fantasy numbers, right? So he instead takes it to concessionary funders, which is, you know, your, you know, your um, foundations, your uh, foreign uh, direct investments, like, you know, your DFIs and things like that. And um, your world banks, your African development banks, your, you know, these, these groups. And they give you concessionary funding to build this, knowing that you won't make enough money. They're going to just kind of backstop you for a little while. Um, that takes another five years. So you might have a guy out here to, to trying to build a, a mini grid power site. And it takes him four to seven years before he gets any money to actually build the thing. So I actually, as I was looking at this, Philip and I were looking at the numbers and we're like, hold on a second. If you just marry up Bitcoin mining and energy development and you just fund that as a package, you could get your return on investment in seven years, probably less, right? Depends where the pricing and difficulty adjustment is and everything, right? But like mm -hmm. less than seven years. And then you have energy that's virtually free, right? Because you're, you've paid back your investment. There's a new way to think about investing in energy in Africa. And, uh, and Bitcoin mining is what opens that opp opportunity up. But here's the killer on me. It's like, so for where we work, you know, you talk about the politics of it and, you know, everybody kind of bad mouthing Bitcoin mining as a large energy user. That's a value. That's a, that's a benefit, actually. So we have to stop thinking about that as a negative thing. Um, but the other thing we have to stop thinking about is like, sure, like because we use renewable energy, that's what's available around us. It makes the most sense. But we're just like, there's no, there's no real award for being like the, tall, the tallest midget at the morality Olympics, right? Like <laughs> the, the truth is like any type of, of energy can be put to use on this and it should, right? Like I, 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 I don't want to sound like we're like we're like better than everybody else because we use renewables. We use renewables because it makes sense. Right. Exactly. And that's why Bitcoin miners are using renewables generally. They don't not because they're good moral, they're not the tallest midget at the morality, you know, um market. They're just simply doing what makes economic sense. Josh just hinted at the fact that there's a midget market. I, I don't know. We may have to cut that. The midget market, where's that at, dude? Just selling midgets somewhere <laughs> in the world? I'm sure somebody is. I mean, somebody had to get those guys on the Wolf of Wall Street, right? They didn't just show up. <laughs> They're for sale somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> the seven-year payback period you're talking about, Eric, is interesting because I, I mean, I'm certainly not as somebody who's deep in these markets, but I have to imagine that building a public utility, the payback period is probably very long in general. Like if you're building, even in the US, right, you're going to build a grid. I don't think there's a company out there that is going you know what's a realistic payback time for our investment here? Our capital investment is going to be about five to seven years. Like, There's no way. It's way too expensive. And that's just showcasing how good of a subsidizing, uh, what subsidizing characteristics Bitcoin has for this type of business case. It's amazing. And Josh, it's not only a long time frame, it's also a risky proposition to begin with. Hey, you're right. going to get paid back in fucking seven years and we're not sure if it's going to work out. Who in their mm. right mind wants to do that, right? And then here comes this new thing that just fixes the problem. It's well, prior to that, what were they, even, even if they were magic numbers on a spreadsheet that they knew probably wouldn't get paid back, do you know roughly what their schedule for potentially getting paid back without Bitcoin mining was? Was it 
drastically longer? 20 to 25 years. Yeah. That's a, what a massive difference. Yeah. Well, Huge difference. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's, 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 it completely changes the game. And, um, so that's actually one of the things I'll be speaking about in, in Miami and, and places like that is like, actually, there's a new way to think about this. And, um, and, you know, as gridless, we might take more of a position in helping to figure out how to finance that. Um, so that'll be the, the next stage of gridless, I think is figuring that out. Um, but for gridless right now, it's just about, Hey, you know, our zero to one is getting to 10 Bitcoin a month, right? Uh, we're, we're small, we're working with little, you know, mini grids, getting enough miners deployed for that. We've got a, a bucket load of miners coming in. I'm really excited about in about three weeks, uh, starting to deploy those into uh, new countries. Um, that's the main butter, bread and butter of what we do. And, um, you know, but I think, I think the bigger opportunity and the reason why this is such a big opportunity, this, I mean, for geeks on mining, uh, why you should be paying attention. I, I think it's a race to zero. And, um, what does that mean if you're a Bitcoin miner? Well, I think as a Bitcoin miner, you should be thinking about how do I own equity in, in energy? Because that then gives me a zero position on mining too. So I can stay mining while everybody else capitulates. Mm, yep, yep. Wow. Or a more reason why energy utilities are probably going to be jumping into the Bitcoin mining space. No, I a hundred percent believe so. I don't know what the time range on that is yeah. five, 10 years, but I think there's going to be a bloodbath after the next happening. And then, um, I think, uh, we'll see, we'll see where the price is and the difficulty is after that. Yeah. Difficulty has been accelerating lately. Oh my Any gosh. idea or thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I'm just like I, my jaw. I have to pick up my jaw off the floor. Where are these things coming from? They must have gotten ordered during the last boom, and now they're finally getting fully delivered. Yeah, everyone's like, "Well, fuck it, hook them all up and send it." Yeah, no, I think it is. People are just sending it, and I, I think it's the um, the mixture of people had already bought these and they're now there. I think it's um, um, more countries getting involved that aren't broadcasting it um they're not being vocal about it and mm. uh, you know the mix of the two um with the price going up from you know where we were for you know three or four months you know has doubled already and so that's i think that has motivated people to say hey listen let's go ahead and turn these things on and start stacking anyway I agree with your, it's a complete conjecture, but when I watch these numbers going through the roof, I do buy the whole everybody ordered. Now they're getting them, they're plugging it in. But I think there's some big dogs mining Bitcoin behind the scene. I think there's some nation states involved. That's, that's Dan's working, working theory that are not telegraphing it. And, um, I think that's part of the reason why it's so inexplicable. Like it's surprising to look at, but when, when you're looking at this thing go vertical, I mean, I've been watching it just the last few weeks. Like, what is going on? No, it, yeah, dude, somebody at Bitmain knows a lot. I mean, they obviously are building <laughs> yeah. these things, and they're yeah. selling them to somebody, yeah. and they know exactly who, and they're not telegraphing it. Josh, let's get them boozed up in Miami. Let's find someone from Bitmain, isolate them, get a lot of vodka in them, and get some yeah. information. Yeah, we'll we'll just <laughs> drop some mushrooms in their drink and talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to ask you Eric about how overbuilt some of these mini grids are. Everything's overbuilt, especially in the renewable space and I know there's a ton of stranded energy in hydro. But how overbuilt are these grids you're working on, which obviously then presents an opportunity for you? Well, I would say that most mini grids that we've talked to, I would be surprised if they're over 30% usage. Wow. So 70% 
is just basically being pumped into the ground uh, you on know, a what given day. Usually you'll, you'll hear me say is that there's 40 to 60% available. I've never seen less than 40%. Wow. That's higher than I thought you were going to say. Holy yeah. I, I mean, thinking about building these things, you've got to consider, I mean, obviously I'm not doing this, but if you're going to put this time and resources into it, you've got to kind of future-proof this thing for a period of time so that you're not, you know, having to go back and build it again. So, yeah. so I can imagine they are massively overbuilt, but that does, it's a surprisingly high number. But that's still, I mean, so the, the, the unit economics of building a mini grid are very, are not very good, right? Um, you might spend, uh, in the best case scenario is maybe it'll range between about 2000 to $4,000 per kilowatt, um, which is pretty big. So one of the biggest mm-hmm. things you have to solve for is the the scale problem and and the cost per kilowatt to build it out. So if you're building a you know a hundred kilowatts, multiply you know two thousand by that, then you you have your number, and you're like that's your best case scenario. Um, and and so you don't want to build small because the smaller the more expensive, right? So you actually want to build a little bit bigger because you have better unit economics um, and mm, better yeah. economies of scale. And so you know for for our our energy partners. We think that what they need to do is actually build bigger. So if you're going to build for, listen, we think in five years, the community will need 100 kilowatts. We'll say, well, why don't we come in there with you and let's build 500 kilowatts. And we'll take all the excess, you know, beyond that 100, well, even even eating into whatever is excess for Bitcoin mining, as the community comes on, we turn it off. And uh, because the community will actually always pay more. And if we're equity partners in the energy too, then we know it's we're incentivized the same way like if we make if we as an energy partner um in this whole thing as well make more money from selling to the community that's good for everybody right yeah i mean you've got two things at work they both connect one is we've just covered why these things tend to be so overbuilt unit economics planning for the future future but then you consider just the intermittency of renewables themselves Definitely. and what you've uh, what you've created is a lot of energy that could be sold somewhere yeah yeah it, it, like we don't we haven't really messed with any solar yet um, we play with it on our own in our office just because you know we wanted to figure out some of the the nuances of it um, I, I'm actually really excited there's so there's this massive 400 um, megawatt uh, wind site that was built up in northern Kenya in the northern desert and um it's one of the best wind energy sites in the world it is just blows like crazy um all the time but especially at night in the daytime it is some of the best sun in the world and you know if you see a cloud it's uh it's going to be a so you know you know a couple days a year it's pretty it's pretty good for that kind of energy and uh, i would love to be able to do something hybrid up there um right now they just have wind uh but if you started to build something out that was solar and wind in that kind of a location it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing up there. That's the kind of place that I think even larger Bitcoin mining could happen. And so yeah. with a project like that, just pulling the thread there, uh, you, you just use the word middle of nowhere. It sounds like it's producing a ton of energy. So they're just running these things for, I'm assuming, years without anyone buying it, right? Before anyone's connected? There's not always great planning uh, to utility scale um, uh, build outs. So in this case, the Kenyan government had um, agreed to this 400 megawatt build out of, of wind, but they had no idea how they were going to get it transmitted to the population centers. It took another six years. So that, that energy was, be, was built and dumped into the soil 
every day for seven years, six years. And that was when we had our other aha moment that we didn't do as well, um, which was to put uh, some Bitcoin mining containers up there in 2013, 2014. And we didn't do it. And because um, we had just built the other company. And then um, Philip at the time was the one with the idea. And I was like, Philip, we just got fun- funding for this other company. We got to focus, man. Come on, stay stay in your lane. And, um, and uh, you know, if we, if we built a Bitcoin mining company, we'd probably in, be in helicopters right now. Yeah, Philip's <laughs> got to be pissed. Philip, I'm sorry, man. Eric That's just keeps keeps blue balling you, dumping on him. Dan and I, Dan and I've got the opposite story. We were entertaining the idea of buying. I mean, very small scale, obviously. For the <laughs> but we for were going to buy like six, firemen. yeah, like six, you know, six S nineteens. It was going to cost like fifty grand. We entertained right. it, and what was it, twenty mid twenty twenty two? Whatever it was, it was the worst possible time we could have ever oh, entertained yeah. it. We would have just taken a bath, absolute murderous. Like they would have lost. They lost like a. I don't know, 90% of their value as yeah, machines. Yeah. And now they're almost useless for the amount. I mean, thank God we didn't do it. Yeah. So, I mean, for every story of the missed out, there's also the other story of could have gotten totally fucked. So, well, the, the, I think there's another, another story here too. Like, if we go back to that 400 megawatts, like oftentimes governments build out very large in, in, in Africa. I won't speak to the rest of the world, but in Africa, you see, you know, Uganda, Ethiopia. Ethiopia is coming online with literally, I think it's, I, I'm going to miss the number, but I think it's like four giga, gigawatts right now of just hydro. And there's no buyer, right? Um, so there's this opportunity space where large miners can come into these locations and um, say, hey, listen, let's do a five-year contract, right? And that five-year contract is valuable for the government because there's somebody who can use it and put it to work right away. And... Um, and then when they get the grid connected or when the people in the communities are, you know, in the, in the, in the population center start using that energy, um, they can turn them off, right? So it's a shorter term, it's not a 20 year contract, it's a four or five year contract. That, that I think is interesting and valuable. What the danger is, is the governments now are looking around the world and saying, oh, you know, maybe we should provide, put a tax on this. So it's, you know, you know, it's not just the U.S. who's looking at putting like what is it, thirty percent tax on like yeah, mining. that's what they're talking about. You know, there's yeah. another country in Africa that has a lot of excess energy that's you know saying, oh well, you know, for the ordinary person we would charge two cents, but for Bitcoin mining we're going to charge five. Yep, guys, you know what happens? Bitcoin mining is like is like pouring water on the ground. It goes to the low water. It goes to the to the lowest point. So you're just not going to get them. So like this 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 is a very easy logic. Um, you know, question to answer, right? Which is like, if you price above X, you will get nothing. If you price below X, you will get everything. Which, what do you want? Right? Mm, And and figuring, you know, like, so there's the greed and and, and misunderstanding that happens at the regulatory level um, in the governments that uh, I think happens everywhere in the world. Speaking of politics, um, you mentioned there's a ton of energy that's potentially available for Bitcoin miners. I can imagine a lot of these large companies are thinking about this, tossing that around. How much political danger is there, though, in some of these places? Like, so if, if I'm a large miner, I'm going to put millions of dollars worth of capital in a certain location to, you know, capture this hydroelectric energy. How much danger is there in that this government can just seize my equipment or it's somehow politically corrupt where somebody is just going to walk in with some AK-47s and say, uh, these are my miners now? How to, um, how, <laughs> yeah, not Captain Phillips inspired at all. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> Someone get a Captain Phillips, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, I'm the captain now. Um, so, um, it's a danger, right? Like you have to think about that. So like, if you are, um, looking at Ethiopia, you have to be thinking about the, um, the kind of civil war that's been going on. And, you know, you have to add that into your risk profile for that geography. And that therein lies the danger of a government trying to be selfish and or greedy with their power pricing is like, you, you know, you're already, you're only being looked at because of the price, because nothing else is in your favor. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, so there's a danger in that happening. Um, you know, I think, I think I believe in free markets. Right. And I think what happens is that while this is in the, in the short term, the short term here could be two to five years, which unfortunately is that people you know, who run, um, who make the decisions in governments around this will learn. And they'll learn because they see what countries are making money because they allow this to happen and what countries aren't. And, um, you know, for the miners, you know, I, you know, I think, you know, Brandon uh, Quidham, you know, has, you know, the best thinking around this, right? Which is like- Pioneer Species article. We'll link that. Yeah, Pioneer Species. Bitcoin mm-hmm. miners are Pioneer Species. We, we go to- that where the energy is the least expensive. And we do have to work into that equation, the de-risking on political, economic, um, and geographic reasons. Mm. Okay. Uh, I have a, we'll pretend like it's our closer, but we often fake with the closer. So uh, (laughs) theoretically, the closing question, it's a two-parter. What other Bitcoin projects are you most excited about in Africa? And if you weren't working on Gridless, what would you be working on? Uh, they're the same thing. It's on ramps and off ramps uh, for local fiat into uh, Bitcoin. Uh, so the people, there's people who are working on it. You know, the guys at Bitnob in Nigeria are, are they have theirs. Um, you know, the movement of money with Mashankura on USSD on dumb phones, I still think is one of the most brilliant things. I think that there's a new frame on this that it has to be completely decentralized, though. Um, and that's where, uh, I get really excited. I meet with some of the, you know, cause I'm a software guy too. Right. So I sit down with the, the local engineers who are building on lightning and building on, uh, the Bitcoin, um, core code base and things like that. And, um, we talk about this all the time. And so they're building now, you know, they've started building out frameworks for it. Like, how can you use something like Noster, which is a fully de- decentralized communications network, right? Um, and you take that as well as um, a decentralized wallet structure for people to be able to to actually not be stopped. And the way I explain it to everybody is, you know, we already have one of the most vibrant mobile money systems in the world. It's in Kenya, right? There's like something like twenty percent of our GDP moves through mobile money every every day. It's it's incredibly huge. Um, so we know how to use mobile phones to move money this country is, is, is one of the biggest in the world at it. What we have is an agent network. And so agents, you go to an agent, if you want to cash in or cash out and that agent, um, you know, works with the mobile phone company and works with the banks or whoever. Right. And so a lot of little dukas, a lot of little shops will be mobile, mobile money agents. And, um, the way I think about it though, is this, anybody who's using, um, and wants to buy or sell Bitcoin, how can you make everybody an agent so that I could walk up to you, Dan, and say, hey, I've got 500 shillings. Can you give me 500 shillings of Bitcoin? And you could pull out your phone 
and you could say, yeah, give you know, you pull out your phone too, and 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 I give you my QR code, and you send me five hundred shillings worth of Bitcoin plus whatever fee that. So you make a little something, right? It's worth your while, and I give you the cash. Like that's uh, we need a way that we can move analog to digital and digital to digital, where everybody is an agent. I think that's one of the most important things that needs to be built. I think the way we think about money and the way we use money in Africa is is a little different than what you'd see in the West. Um, and so that solution has to be built here. Mm. Um, we did fake you out because I've got one more thing to ask you. I'm just, I'm thinking about this in terms of um, the way the mainstream media has has been shitting on Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin mining. If you were to go on a mainstream network and they gave you 30 seconds to respond to somebody uh, asking you basically, why is Bitcoin mining good for the world? Could you give us your 30 second, this is the best, uh, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, 30 seconds to one minute, just like this is why Bitcoin mining is good for the world and it's a net positive for humanity. Yeah, I would probably say something like, you might not agree with the energy usage for this for this industry, but by this industry existing, it allows people to get an education, to be able to have cleaner cooking and um, further their lives. And if you think that your moral position on Bitcoin mining as an industry is more important than a kid in Africa getting his education, then we're never going to agree on this. Love it. Man, I just thought of a tweet. Uh, Troy Cross, who I'm guessing you're familiar with. Troy's one of the best people out there, man. I love Troy. Oh, he's incredible. He's uh, great. He, this is his tweet. In quotes, Bitcoin isn't a socially valuable way to use energy. He said, presumes the speaker's authority to determine utility rather than markets. Presumes access to banking isn't useful. Presumes currency debasement isn't a problem for anyone. Mm -hmm. Presumes financial censorship isn't a problem. And I'm going to add, based on our conversation today, presumes that power and energy access and grid expansion around the world, and particularly in Africa, isn't important. A lot of hollow presumptions there, and the implications of this freaking technology just continue to make my head explode every single week, Josh. Agreed. Yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's actually phenomenal. Like you don't, you don't realize until you get into it what it actually unlocks, right? It, sure, it unlocks energy in Africa. Uh, but it also unlocks uh, international markets in Africa. It, uh, it, it unlocks money movement between borders and outside of banks. Like, these are all things that actually move humanity forward. Absolutely. And that's 1.2 billion people in Africa who can be adding economic momentum to the rest of the world. You know, And they're, they're basically, a, a vast majority of them are cut off at this moment, but they're just as capable, just as intelligent, and just as useful at adding economic, uh, again, momentum as, as any of the rest of us. Yeah. And it's just a positive thing for all of humanity if they're, if they're involved. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. I mean, you know, that, that old saying, which is like, intelligence is universal, but opportunity is not, right? And, you know, what mm -hmm. this does is it, it levels the playing field. Bitcoin actually levels the playing field for Africa uh, in the way that, um, that almost any other technology doesn't. The only other technology that comes close is internet connectivity. Mm. Yeah, we use the word inclusion a lot. And I think for a lot of hardcore Bitcoiners, freedom is the, the headliner word. 
I'm here to argue that inclusion is just as big, if not a bigger deal. And we tend to think about that as people cut off from the banking system. What we've done here today is broaden it even further to people that are just cut off from power in general. Right. It's, it's remarkable what yeah. this can do from an inclusive perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we, again, like going full circle on our conversation too, is like, we tend to forget what the world looks like when we don't have power. Mm-hmm. Amen. Eric, man, thank you for joining us. Uh, anything that you want to hand off to before you go? No, man, I've just been fantastic conversation. Thanks for uh, having me on here. And uh, it's great to meet you guys. Well, see you guys, I guess. And hopefully I'll actually be able to meet you guys in Miami. Yeah, yes. we'll both be there. We hope to meet you. We will. We will uh, find a time to, to isolate you and pick your brain some more <laughs> in Miami Beach. Sounds great. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Eric. Well, that does it for this week, folks. In my own personal view, this one with Eric was one of our most meaningful in a while. Interested to hear if you felt the same. Reminder that Swan Bitcoin has extended a really unique offer to listeners of Blue Collar Bitcoin. They are giving Swan Premium for free. Visit our link down in the show notes under Swan and enter password Blue Collar Bitcoin to get this offer. This is normally a $200 a year or $20 a month value. It includes exclusive Swan content, market insights, and legitimate discounts on events and other things. We are also on Podcast 2.0 apps, our go-to of which is Fountain App. That's where the two of us listen to podcasts. If you have two extra minutes, do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple or like and subscribe on your app of choice. Until next week, plebs, keep it real and huddle on. Yeah, 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 yeah.